I'm Angus Kebble, and welcome to Factum Agri, dedicated to New Zealand's agriculture industry. Key areas of focus are industry analysis with key stakeholders, policy makers, engagement with farmers and producers, and working to close the rural-urban divide. Farmers work hard. They love the land and are a critical part of New Zealand's fabric. There are many things for farmers to think about, whether it be drought, market conditions and farm gate returns, and increased pressure from the public or policy makers. Working with Postquake Farming, we're taking a look at what farmers are doing to improve their businesses, their biodiversity, their land use, and their well-being. Before we get into this week's episode, let's take a look at where things are at with the horticulture market. New Zealand horticulture exports continue to remain solid and receipts are well above 2019 results. Kiwifruit continues to enjoy strong growth in year-on-year sales. Apple volumes remain steady and match 2019 levels. China continues to be our largest market for our horticulture products with nearly 30% of total exports by value for the year ending June 2020. This market by value has doubled since 2010. Demand for New Zealand's horticulture products are expected to remain strong through the balance of 2020 and into 2021. The biggest risks are restrictions at the border due to COVID-19 and the current shortfall of labour to harvest the fruit. This week on Factor Magri, I discuss the economic and social implications of erosion and the mitigation methods being used by farmers with farmer Rob Stokes and Landcare Research Senior Economist Patrick Walsh. Firstly, let's check in with Rob. Hello Rob, thank you for talking with me today. Yeah, no, good to catch up, Angus. Rob, please can you tell me where you are located and what you farm? Um, we're based, the station's based in Lees Valley. Um, there's two and a half thousand hectare probably up there. Um, and predominantly um, steep hill country uh, with a mix of sort of a thousand hectares of flats. Um, the year we've uh, rejigged the farm as such and uh, we've got 120 hectares out of Oxford there as an irrigated block and we just shifted out of Lees Valley uh, coming up three years I suppose. Um, so we're living at uh, Belkin I've just got a dry land block there that we uh, finished a uh, few cattle and um, yeah, just uh, take some bulls through for our annual bull sale that we have. Uh, and yeah, that's about us really, yeah. Rob, have you had any issues with erosion on your property over the years? Um, erosion probably hasn't been a, a big issue with us. I think it's um, the in the past it's only been through weather events that rivers been damaged and banks and uh, streams that have been uh, that are predominantly that do flood have uh, moved a bit of sediment around, but hasn't been a big issue in these valley. And um, you know, to mitigating it, I suppose we've been putting in trees on um, bank edges where it's chewed out and willows. And uh, we, yeah, probably the biggest issue we've got is that we, a lot of the streams are going to be fenced off now, so um, we can't uh, you know keep those streams clean as like we probably would have done in the past so sediment movement's probably going to be worse so when you talk about the mitigation when you are needing to fence off some of these streams moving forward will you then plant as well uh, i don't think we'll plant because i think we're going to get that many weeds coming into the um within the 
boundary fence of it that, uh, and you know, a lot of farmers are thinking, oh, well, it's like most things you put up a boundary fence, then that's the, um, you're going to do nothing with that land. So weeds turn up and uh, it'll clog up the rivers and probably got to get bigger issues coming. Um, it'll probably do more sediment damage than anything, and, um, especially when you're a, uh, not, it's not an intensively grazed property, and most of these valley isn't uh, pretty extensive. So I don't think it's. Um, I think we're going to do more damage in the coming years for what's coming to have a fence store freely. And the fencing off of those waterways that comes at a cost to your farming business. Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, we've yeah probably everyone's seen the lowland map and everything about uh, ten percent rural slopes and how. They can implement them. Um, Lees Valley's been caught up quite uh, a high percentage of it has been caught up in it um, to be the, those areas to be fenced off, and uh, just it's um, a huge cost to get all those rivers, creeks that are over a metre wide. Is um, we've sort of quoted it out and priced it out. If we did anything by the book, the way the map is shown us, we're up for two hundred thousand and. For us, it's probably, um, yeah, it's a big bill, but there's bigger stations that have got 50k of river frontage that, you know, they, they could be up for a million dollars. And is there any financial support for farmers in this area or policymakers just saying, here's what you need to do and all the best with the cost? Well, councils, yeah, there, there is some funding there. They keep telling us that, but if um, we all went in at the same time, they're just not going to have the funding to keep it up. We've got a QE2 trust um, on the farm that is you know, 10 hectares that was fenced off and um, now they want to come back in and refence it to keep any deer or wildlife out of it. But um, you know, $20,000 bill for that, but QE2 are funding that one, but you know, looking to fund it, um, probably struggling to fund it all. But I think you know, there probably is funding mechanisms out there, but by the time we get into the wetland, issues, you know, we're just going to run out of, um, council's going to be flat out dealing with these new water, uh, fresh water plans, let alone uh, trying to fence these off. So you talk about a QE2 part of your property, clearly biodiversity is an important part of your farming operation? Yeah, it is. Um, my father, you know, he developed the, um, this, well, I suppose you call it a swamp as such in the early days but never went, you know, kept areas um, probably pretty pristine to what they were, and they still are. Um, and the drains, the way we, when we first developed, the drains were put in, but they were put in in such a way that they couldn't um, affect any of the wetlands that um, had a lot of good diversity in them, and they've grown from there, and they're unfenced. Um, and, of course, we're going to have to fence them there, another cost, but the drains sort of been... They go through the property and then they'll be let go into a wetter area where it thrives if it gets more water and um, it's actually a sponge and slows the water up. Then it'll drop down at probably a half a cave into another drain and just a slow process of letting it going out of the place so it's not um, ripping that much sediment out of it and like a soap pit as such. Um, a lot of scientists yeah, put us onto that. To, that's what can slow it down. You know, you can have your drains but just have a let go area where it can soak it all in and we've probably made more wetlands than we've lost mm. through that system and it's um, been beneficial the only reason we went to the QE2 we just 
we needed at that stage. We were unsure where the council was going to come in with his significant sites and claim them all. So we thought, oh, we'll just put some in QE2 and see how we go with that. And they've been really good. Would you say that your farming practices have improved over the years compared to, say, your father or your grandfather? Oh, I'd hope, hopefully we've gone forward. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think we've, we definitely haven't, um, you know, your farmers are out there to be custodians of the land, and um, I think we do a bloody good job because we're not an intensive, you know, beef and sheep fellows uh, on a whole are not intensive in a lot of country, and they respect what they've got. And uh, if you damage that, you usually lose that sort of ecosystem that um, that thrives in there. And we can work, yeah, coexist together, I think. And um, yeah, my father, yeah, what he developed up was all, and we probably pushed on from that. Uh, but we've never ever been detrimental to any of the biodiversity in it. Um, we've got some some sort of areas there that uh, we're going to have to go back through and relook and feed some, but they've been there my father's day so and if they're still there today obviously the management hasn't affected it so why should we um you seem to have to fence something well fencing off doesn't solve the problem like governments seem to think it's got to be all fenced off uh, that's not the issue in a lot of backcountry places do you think there's a disconnect between rural and urban populations yeah it's a bloody tricky one really because you get the media probably want to prize that one right open and um, get that crack between the uh, us I suppose but uh, you know we've all got our I don't think um, the urban ones really understand what we're trying to do and we probably don't understand enough of what because it doesn't interest us some of it um, I suppose but uh, you know we were talking to a turkey the other day that um, had his boy going to rugby in town and um, he said to him I how yeah, things going out in the farm there. He said, oh, we're just going through a lot of um, plans, come and change plans and stuff, and we're just dealing with this grazing thing at the moment. He said, oh, what's that? And he said, oh, it's a bit like, yeah, if you if you put all your lettuces in and um, try to grow them in August, uh, you wouldn't put them in, would you? And the fellow said, no, no, they'd all get frosted and died. Or We're basically being told we've got to have all our... Uh, areas that were in winter crop have to be sown, re-sown into grass by the 1st of October, which is, these are silly rules that we get chucked at us. Um, and then he was just flabbergasted. And he said, well, you know, we don't, we probably don't get enough um, information to the urban people to understand what we're really about. And um, that that's probably the biggest problem. Yeah, mm. media sometimes betray us as, you know, the bad eggs of the lot and, you know, every business has got some bad eggs in it, but on a whole, farmers are pretty conservative, and I think, um, yeah, we've got to cut that out. Are you worried, and are some of your farming friends concerned about compliance around these new freshwater regulations? Yeah, pretty deeply. Yeah, it's um, well, probably, for me, I'm probably only going to talk about the Hull and High Country ones a bit, but uh, I feel for the ones on the, say, the Canary Plains, though, if you're tied up the irrigation, you've got to you're going to have all these consents and farm plans and we've probably learnt off them um, and to get prepared for what's coming. Uh, they've done a lot of good stuff down there and I think the whole country has, you know, we're picking up on it and doing a better job than four or five years ago. Um, we want to, we're keen to go down the track of farm plans. We, we've never said we weren't and uh, government think we were against it, but 
we could see if that made farming the eyes and you know probably back to urban people that we are doing a good job or that it and it's a live document or we could work with that it'd be quite easy but uh the regulations have got um too many regulations making it tougher uh, for everyone, I think, and the freshwater one. And are these regulations the biggest risk to New Zealand's farming sector right now? Uh, no, they are. This would be the worst um, probably 12 months in farming I've had as far as dealing with, you know, got a fair idea. Um, and fed farmers and beef and lamb have done a terrific job of explaining back to the farmers what's coming. And it's the biggest threat to farming that's ever been. Um, if we're gonna, if the government's going to carry on uh, regulating these rules are put in and going through cabinet and they're not consulting enough with those um, farming agencies uh, we're losing the input into there and they come out with these pretty basically stupid rules that don't work um, farmers are going to have it they're not going to do them um, they've had enough and we've been trying to negotiate over it but uh, where do we go now when our back's against the wall? Our incomes are going to be severely um, depleted. They won't even pay much tax out of farmers this coming 12 months. What's happened? Rob, how important is the primary sector to New Zealand's economy? Yeah, pretty huge, I think. We're a pretty good bunch, but uh, just how many knocks more the farms can take over this. Um, you, know, you get blanket rules um, that are costing the farmer. Um, big money uh, and it's um, going to be ongoing and yeah I suppose the council's going to get more bills trying to get these consents sorted out um, in the next three years but uh, I think we do a pretty good job what we the markets we're involved with and with COVID it's going to get tougher and um, we realise that um, but this timing of everything is so poor we're getting Government plans and uh, yeah, winter grazing biodiversity, national plan policies, and uh, what else can we? And RMA acts all getting right at this time, getting chucked. Mm. And it's unfortunate they get reviewed now, but they should have been more consultation and let it run its course a bit better. And we would have come in better. We all want a um, better income, you know, incomes to improve, so we can look after biodiversity and do a good job. Um, and be in a, innovative in what we're doing. But if they carry on with what's going on, they're taking everything away from us. Um, and yeah, the incomes aren't there to support it. And I don't think come how much money they're going to put in this direction. It won't be enough um, unless they get rid of this low land map totally and re, just restart it all again and mm. get that dialogue going with farmers because uh, it's pretty scary. Rob, I thank you very much for your time today. All right, cheers for that. No problem. Um, no, we hope things improve for everyone. Hello, Patrick. Thank you for your time today. Hello, Angus. Thank you for having me. Please, can you tell me about the work that you do? Sure. I'm a senior economist at Manaki Fenua Landcare Research, where I conduct policy-focused research in environmental, agricultural, and natural resource economics, uh, as well as some other overlaps on, in conservation and natural hazards. Um, I manage a team of five other economists that specialize in similar fields, and a lot of my research is on benefit-cost analysis and environmental valuation, so you know, valuing changes in the environment uh, if the government 
passes a particular regulation, uh, what are going to be the benefits and costs of that? And so right now, for instance, I'm doing uh, quite a bit of research on the benefits and costs of erosion control in New Zealand uh, as part of a large MB program with several others at Manaki Fenua, uh, Massey University, and NIWA. Um, before working at Manaki Fenua, I was at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, um, where I was doing similar things. Today, I've been talking about erosion and the impact that has on farmers. An immediate cause for many is earthquakes, and that's something that many in the South Island are familiar with. We know there were significant insurance claims made because of the destruction caused by the Kaikoura earthquake, for example. Do you have any idea what percentage were attributed to erosion due to the earthquake? Uh, yeah, that's something that's really difficult to estimate. Um, so I have done some uh, some research on EQC claims, but they only represent uh, a proportion of the total insurance claims. Um, and so in some areas, we see in our research a significant relationship between erosion landslide and EQC claims. So you can see in areas of uh, high elevation, high erosion that are near population centers, we can directly link um, a lot of those landslide and erosion to the claims. But, um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, background erosion, so just from hillsides and human-induced erosion from land use conversion, um, I think those are certainly more widespread than earthquake-induced erosion. How much effective land are farmers losing to erosion each year, do you think? Uh, yeah, that's something that's really hard to quantify. Um, in terms of how much area of land they might be using, that really depends on the soil under your farm where your farm's located, the elevation of your farm. Um, as part of this uh, erosion uh, research I'm doing, we're looking at productivity impacts of erosion, and that's where we really see um, something that's significant in terms of um, with high erosion on your farm, it can really affect the productivity of whatever crops you have. And so there are ways to mitigate that by, you know, for instance, applying more fertilizer and doing additional management strategies, but those have costs associated with them. So, um, yeah, we definitely see that there is an impact on productivity. Um, but, you know, in some areas, in actually losing part of your land to erosion, um, it certainly happens. But, yeah, I wouldn't be able to quantify that. And what are the economic impacts on a farmer that is working away hard to reduce erosion risk? Um, well... Yeah, that depends on the type of erosion that's on there. So, you know, if, is it mass movement erosion on, on hillsides, for instance, or is it surficial erosion, you know, that's associated with land use? Um, there can be a number of economic impacts. I mean, first off, it's costly sometimes to put in erosion control. Uh, so, you know, we, we've been looking around at different costs across different regional councils for you know, how much it costs to plant trees on hillsides, for instance. And, uh, you know, you'll get uh, around 700 to $800 per hectare for planting uh, 50 poles per hectare. And so, you know, th that can be a significant cost. Um, you know, but on the other hand, one of the things we're trying to look at is, you know, what you get for that, because once you put the trees in, um, you might also get some other benefits. You're not going to have the erosion coming onto your land, so you will help. Uh, um, you might see some increases in productivity. Um, in some cases, you might be able to sell the lumber. You might be able to get a rotation going on. Um, there's certainly a lot of ecosystem services coming from that, carbon sequestration, um, you know, improvements in water quality, a number of things. But 
but yeah, there there are a number of costs associated with that, and you know, planting of trees is certainly only one one of the things that you can do. Is planting trees currently the best practice or strategy to mitigate erosion? So when it comes to mass movement erosion, um, tree planting is kind of the best practice. But when we're talking about surface erosion, uh, there's a bunch of things you can do, um, such as put in shelter belts, put in more fencing to keep uh, stock away from rivers, um, riparian buffering, infield buffering, swales, and some people even reduce their stock um, to kind of reduce pugging and, and, and other things like that. So for surface erosion, there's a number of things that you can do that really depend on where you're located, what type of um, industry you're in, uh, you know, and and how long-term you're looking. But you know, when it comes to mass movement erosion, um, from what I've seen, tree planting is the way to go. And you touched a bit on carbon sequestration. Are there any measurables currently on the environmental downside or the impact on carbon sequestration? Yeah, that's actually a good question. Um, so that certainly depends on what type of soils uh, you have on the farm, but certainly when erosion occurs in certain types of soil, you will lose some carbon sequestration, especially depending on the vegetation that's present. So um, it's tough because um, you know some of the other natural scientists I'm working on in Palmerston North at uh, Massey and Manaki Fenua down there are really trying to get a better estimate of the carbon-related impacts on that, but um, as far as New Zealand-specific impacts. And in terms of social implications of erosion? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly erosion affects a number of things. You know, employment, for instance, um, there's a lot of cultural implications. A lot of Māori have um, a number of cultural values associated with particularly the land. Um, you know, when you have a lot of erosion in an area and it really degrades a waterway, um, you know, that can affect swimming, recreation, um, you know, we've seen a lot of issues, especially between neighbors, for instance, that, uh, you know, if, if the guy next to you has got quite a bit of hillside and he's, you know, dumping a lot of sediment in, in the water in front of your area, that can cause some significant transboundary issues. Um, and then, you know, erosion and landslide are directly linked and those can have quite significant impacts on communities. So, yeah, we do see, you know, there are quite a bit of social impacts and, um, trying to characterize those uh, certainly right now but yeah there's a number of them associated with it what support and particularly financial support is out there for farmers in mitigating erosion yeah this depends also on the regional local council that they're in but there are a number of programs that can help farmers with erosion control costs and so for instance the hill country erosion program that's run by the central government provides millions of dollars every year um, to farmers to help out with erosion control and those are usually paired with regional council specific programs. Uh, I've been speaking with a, a number of regional council representatives lately and you know, talking with them about quite a few programs they have. And they'll, some regional councils will subsidize 40 or 50% of the things that you want to do. Um, so you can get rebates for tree planting, for instance. And so there are a number of programs out there. Thank you very much for your time today, Patrick. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And I hope you have a nice day. Thank you to my guests today, Rob Stokes and Patrick Walsh. Soil is the foundation of New Zealand's farming practices. When soil erodes, it makes land less productive and can lead to floods, slips and damage to infrastructure and property. The annual cost in New Zealand to mitigate erosion is north of $100 million. Poplar and willow trees are commonly planted for erosion reduction to stabilise our pastoral hill country, increase water storage, 
reduce sediment transfer, improve water quality, benefit stock and enhance the farm environment. Sediment loss is an issue and farmers are working hard in many ways to mitigate erosion and sediment loss through avoiding heavy stock grazing on steeper, more vulnerable soils, especially when areas are wet. They are fencing stock out of waterways and leaving buffers when cultivating, over-sowing, top dressing and or burning. Many are installing sediment traps such as decanting dams or detainment buns. There are many things the farmer is doing to constantly improve the environment in which they live and breathe. Rob mentioned that this past year has been one of the toughest in his farming life. I am sure that his thoughts and feelings are widely shared in the farming community. In fact, I know they are because I'm talking with them every week. Farmers have had enough and you can't blame them. They are constantly hammered away at. Current policymakers sitting in Wellington need to be more engaged with the farming community and listen to what they have to say and work with farmers. The pressures for farmers are real and those pressures are only increasing. Thank you for listening and catch you next time on Factor Magri.